Welcome to the Just a GP podcast. We are doing another COVID special on Friday, the 17th of April, 2020. And just a reminder that this is a rapidly evolving space and some of the things that we talk about now may not be relevant in the future when you listen to this, may not even be relevant tomorrow, but at least it's relevant today. I'm here with my co-hosts, Charlotte Hesby and Rebecca Hoffman. And today we're going to talk a little bit about what does flattening the curve mean for general practice? So as context, our new daily cases in the last week have been really dropping and we haven't been seeing as much spread as we had prior to any of the policy changes to social distancing, workplace and services. And now we're actually seeing what I see is the, the benefit of those policies. And for general practice, we've gone through massive change in that time. You know, we've seen general practices be transforming the way that they're delivering care to make it safer for their patients, their doctors, and to deliver care in, in different ways that allows to adequately social distance when we don't necessarily have to be seeing face-to-face. And now we're seeing less cases. So, I mean, what does that mean for general practice, Charlotte? Does that mean that we go back to how things were before? Great question. It's one of those sorts of topics that we really do need to sort of toss around and understand because, no, it doesn't mean we go back to what we did before. It means that we consolidate what we've been putting into place in the last four weeks. But rather than being in that sort of mad, anxious state of trying to figure out who, what, where, when, what's the policy, what's the safety, what does this mean, how do we do it, what we can now do is that nice bedding down, going, okay, so the new way of life for the next few months will be about using telehealth as a tool for accessing care for the vast majority of our patients. And how do we do that? How do we make sure it gets done well? And more importantly, how do we then integrate that into our chronic disease management care and bringing patients safely into practice. The nice thing about the flattened curve is that we don't have to be having that same sense of worry that every patient that we see is a potential COVID-19 patient. Instead, we can be appropriately hygiened, distanced, etc., according to whatever the guidelines are as we get given them, but we can actually just think about how we design that care and how do we actually engage with our patients about coming back because they can also start to feel safer knowing that what they need to do is look after themselves better. So we've just bought ourselves a little bit more time to implement the policies that we need in order to deal with an increase in numbers if or when it occurs and to manage the stage of the outbreak as it happens. Yeah, what we've done so well is we've meant that we're not facing the crisis of healthcare services that we've seen in Italy, Spain, the UK and America, where they are just so overwhelmed with very sick patients that they can't do anything else except make really difficult decisions and feel at risk in what they're doing every moment. So it gives us a moment to hopefully gather up appropriate PPE if and when needed, 
we can make sure that our whole systems of care are really bedded down. We have an opportunity to get more and more evidence in from all of those places that are overwhelmed by infections and know that the care that we offer to our patients is far more about what actually happens for this particular virus. I mean, we're just finding out more and more about it to show that this is a very different respiratory tract infection virus. You know, the fact that it doesn't actually infect children much at all, that it isn't highly infective from children. I mean, I'm still fascinated by the concept that small children don't seem to infect adults, whereas adults, we can infect children, which, you know, we all know in inverted commas that children and their snotty noses spread virus to us all. And, you know, we spend our time in the first few years of small children of getting viruses from them. Thank you very much, courtesy of them interacting with each other. But this virus doesn't behave like that. Instead, it attacks us more and more as we get older. Now, of course, there's no absolute. That doesn't mean to say children can't get sick, but certainly it's a different way of actually knowing and understanding this virus. And my understanding is because it's so different, that's why it's taken us some time to be able to respond in the effective ways. And so I guess my interest now is, you know, given that we're buying ourselves a little bit of time, what does that mean in terms of how we might structure our consultations going forward? I know that with the shortage of PPE and trying to conserve our PPE, uh, a lot of the advice has been try and do as much telemedicine as you can so that if you do have to see someone face-to-face that you can be adequately prepared in terms of PPE. And I think there's a lot of confusion out there as to what that means. You know, if we're seeing low levels of community transmission at the moment and everyone who's in isolation is in isolation, does that mean that we can comfortably not wear PPE if we're seeing someone face-to-face that doesn't have symptoms and hasn't been a contact? Or do we still need to be mindful that they could potentially be in that pre-infectious asymptomatic period? I think at the moment we still need to be using PPE because we're still doing that sort of information gathering. So certainly in New South Wales, where the vast majority of the cases still are, we're doing a number of sort of exercises of doing broader testing, just trying to find, is there community infection that we don't know about? And if so, where is it? What does it look like? And just trying to put out a much finer net that's broader sweeping to just make sure that we can have some assurance that it isn't there without us knowing about it. Certainly, I think the medical community is feeling scared that there is pockets of infection that we still don't know about. So that needs to happen first. And once we've got a better understanding of that, then I think we might be able to lower that sort of need to use PPE for everybody And it may well be that we sort of change it. It's a bit like that whole thing about face masks, where in the US and America, I think it's completely appropriate that they bring in the idea of wearing a face mask when you're out in the shops. And that's because there is so much community infection. You really don't know if you do have it and you're in that 24 hours before getting it, or if the person you're standing next to in the queue is in the same boat. Therefore, having everybody wear a face mask is actually about protecting everybody. In Australia, at this point in time, that would be just 
completely silly and a waste of time. We know that there is no such sort of risk, but we don't know if there is any pockets that we don't know about. And I think that's where the confusion comes, doesn't it? Because there's, even in Australia, we've spoken about this a lot on our podcast, that there's different advice from different states. You know, when we look at WA and South Australia, they're expanding their testing criteria quite broadly to include anybody with respiratory symptoms in efforts to try and identify absolutely every case. Whereas in New South Wales, we have greater numbers of the population and also greater pockets of the virus where we're focusing the testing on different areas. And then across the world, we're seeing different policies on masks depending on the prevalence of the infection. And you know, we're seeing a lot of fear amongst our colleagues when I don't think it's necessarily wrong for people to feel that fear because when we see doctors overseas or see other communities that have been able to reduce the transmission to healthcare workers, it's almost above and beyond some of the recommendations that we have in Australia. And that can be really hard for practitioners on the ground to reconcile. So what kind of things would you recommend for GPs to consider when looking at all these differing information and how to kind of understand where they're at in terms of their own safety and and what to do with that? I think, again, it goes back to the basics. It's about remembering that this is a virus that is spread by droplets. Yes, it can spread by aerosol in, in very limited circumstances, And by and large, it is a virus that's not that difficult to cleanse and get rid of. So, for instance, soap is its enemy because of its lipophilic coating. So that it isn't in of itself a virus that's hard to get rid of. And it is a virus that you do need to actually get in contact with it sort of in a more physical state, which is why social distancing works so well. And although there's been a number of different tactics used across the world in terms of how viciously, in inverted commas, it's brought in, they all go to that same idea that it is this is a virus that through, if you don't come in contact with it, through physical contact, and you wash your hands and you don't sort of put that contact into the facial orifices, which are the portal of entry, then you are actually safe from getting that infection. And that by and large, that will work. If you look at us versus New Zealand in terms of how strongly you put those strategies into place, I mean, New Zealand was far stronger than us in terms of what they've asked their population and community to do. Yet, in fact, it's been really no more successful than our strategies have been in Australia. And even though each of the states have taken slightly different approaches, by and large, we've all, again, achieved pretty much the same thing. And I take that to mean that really the strategy that works is the social distancing and it is the hand hygiene and it's about being sensible and pragmatic in that approach. And you don't have to be completely rigid about it as long as you use that to inform how you do everything. Does that make sense? Yeah, so on a practical level, making sure that the time that you spend with patients is you know, less than 15 minutes if you're going to need to be in within one and a half metres of each other, that if you're needing to get close to somebody and they've got mild respiratory symptoms, that you do wear a mask, but otherwise doing hand hygiene and trying to keep the distance if you can during your consult room would be ideal. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I think we now have the opportunity to think about how we structure our clinic times and sessions. So for instance, being able to use a telehealth consultation to do that first initial information gathering, using it to look through the notes. What are the things that I as a doctor want to do through the question asking? What is it that the patient is wanting to do? Making sure those align, get the key things in place and then making a decision to actually need to see them face to face to actually make sure everything gets done appropriately and or are there things that I need to do face-to-face that I can't do over telehealth. Having made that decision, you then proceed with what is needed next, either face-to-face or with another telehealth consultation down the track. So rather than going back to our normal system of everybody comes in to see us face-to-face, that's the bit that changes, that everybody instead has that first at least initial consultation. And you can get an awful lot done so that then when they come in face-to-face, for say, for instance, their pap smear or cervical screening test, as we need to now call it, then I don't need to spend that initial 15 minutes making sure everything else is okay because I've managed to do that already on my telehealth consultation. And instead, I can use that time much more efficiently so that I'm just doing the blood pressure check, weight if I need it, if I need to do any other sorts of physical things, and I can quickly and efficiently do the CST. So what I'm taking is that from here we are in a holding pattern where at the moment we're continuing to doing what we're currently doing while we gather more information about next steps and while we're doing that we're using this time to forward plan what the next steps will look like and what that will look like is probably a combination of using telehealth and face-to-face and amalgamating or combining those two processes to what fits for our community with what changes need to be made. Absolutely. And hoping that we don't actually get an outbreak of COVID in our community because we have to understand that that is always a risk. While there is still COVID, there is a risk of us getting the the sort of levels of infection that we're seeing everywhere else. And, you know, our biggest risk really is, is our community and population getting sick of doing what we're asking them to do at the moment and them breaking out while there's still pockets of infection that we don't particularly know about. Because at the end of the day, we're going to have to continue with the strategies that we're doing at the moment, though maybe with less sort of being told what to do and how to do it until there is a vaccine that we can then basically roll out to as many of our community as possible in order to actually be able to move on back into, in inverted commas, normal life. So quick question, how would we do that process you're talking about on a weekend clinic? That's usually more like a drop-in, you know, need to be seen today type process. I worked this Monday, the public holiday, and we decided to do a, like, phone first system where you know I'd do a phone consultation first before bringing someone in but it actually acted as a, as a repeller and a barrier okay in terms of people not wanting to come in yeah as in people going oh well I won't worry about it then and part of that is developing the systems and the scripts at reception and that sort of thing but where we would normally have on a public holiday 
quite a few patients in in the space of two hours you know the amount of people that we're seeing was a third and most of those had the requirement to be bulk billed under the current system so it wasn't really worth the clinic opening and it's kind of like a disincentive for doing telehealth in those sorts of settings okay well, I think you can look at it, in fact, as an opportunity to be more efficient and so that you can sell it as a telehealth clinic for people. This is your opportunity to be seen quickly and efficiently for the things that you just got on your short shopping list. You as the doctor might be able to get through things a little bit quicker. So you might be able to sort of have a faster appointments time turnover for each of those patients. And then just have an allocated maybe hour that you might have to see patients. But by the end of your telephones, if there hasn't been anybody, then you just don't need to and you can turn off and go home. So you may actually be able to finish more efficiently. In the UK, I remember visiting quite a few clinics that had already set up this sort of telephone triaging system. They get paid differently from us. So they don't have the same issues that you were sort of just, you know, in terms of what's your financial turnover. But I think if you sell it to your patients of this is just an opportunity, what are the things that you're worrying if you've got repeat scripts or anything? And so you can actually get a nice bit of flow through. People feel good because they've actually talked to you rather than not, but you don't have to see people unnecessarily. And I think it comes back to that whole spending this time to figure out systems that work for your practice so that everybody's on board. Yeah. And obviously the patients need to feel like that's what they want to do as well. I mean, that they may not want to, but certainly, I mean, I don't think anybody wants to have to go to the doctors on a Saturday morning if they don't have to. So it may well be a win-win for everybody. Well, I guess that brings us to a natural end of our episode then. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing because there was a big silence after Charlotte's last question, so we've, we've obviously exhausted all the questions that we had. That's it for today's episode.